You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pride goeth before the fall, except in Atlanta, where they do it in October. On the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, just in time for Pride Month, New York City officials announced that a monument has been commissioned to honor pioneering LGBTQ activists Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Their names are coming up in the news a lot now, but who were Johnson and Rivera, and what happened at the Stonewall Inn in 1969 that was big enough to be labeled the Stonewall Rebellion? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, New York City police raided the Greenwich Village gay club called the Stonewall Inn. Let's set the scene. Gay clubs were much more than just a place to get drunk or look for love. The 1960s, and frankly the decades that led up to the 1960s, were not exactly accepting of LGBTQ people. Being queer wasn't only societally unacceptable, it was illegal. Same-sex relations between consenting adults was illegal in New York until 1980, and you could be arrested for not wearing at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that men in dresses found themselves on the receiving end of that one much more often than women wearing slacks. Understandably, LGBTQ people flocked to gay bars and clubs, refuges where they could socialize and be themselves openly. You still weren't safe there, though. The New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down gay bars, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. These regulations were overturned in 1966, thanks to the effort of strident activists. But things as simple as holding hands with someone of the same gender was illegal, so police harassment of gay bars continued. There was another player in the game, the Mafia. The mob saw profit to be had in catering to the displaced and disenfranchised gay clientele. By the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled most of the gay bars in the village. In 1966, they purchased the Stonewall Inn, which had been a bog-standard bar and restaurant, renovated it on the cheap, and reopened it as a gay bar. Stonewall Inn was registered as a private bottle bar, which didn't require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor. Club attendees had to sign their names in a book to maintain the club's membership-only facade. Police initially left the Stonewall Inn alone, by dint of regular bribes from the Genovese family. The police didn't hassle the patrons or the owners, which meant the family could run the club as they saw fit, as cheaply as possible. The club had no fire exit, There was no running water behind the bar to wash glasses. Though there was plenty of water in the drinks. And the less said about the bathroom facilities, the better. 
drug sales and use were de rigueur. To further maximize profit, the Mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret. Nonetheless, Stonewall Inn quickly became an important Greenwich Village institution. It welcomed drag queens who were often ostracized from other gay bars. It was the haven for many runaways and homeless gay youth who panhandled or shoplifted to afford the cover charge. It was one of the few bars left that allowed dancing. Raids were still a fact of life, but corrupt cops would tip off mob-owned bars before the raid so the owners could stash the alcohol they were selling without a license and hide any other illegal activities. The NYPD had actually stormed Stonewall Inn days before the riot-inducing raid. When police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar hadn't been tipped off this time. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up patrons, and, finding illegal liquor, arrested 13 people, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute. Female officers would take patrons into the bathroom to see if their genitals matched their outfit. So you're shunned by your family and society, told who you are on the inside is wrong. You finally find somewhere where you can be with people who understand you, even if it's a filthy dive. And then this happens? Fed up with constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and neighbors became increasingly agitated as the events unfolded, and people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, a male officer hit by racial lesbian drag king Stormy Delavire over the head as he forced her into the paddy wagon. Do something, she yelled to the crowd, though she hardly needed to. A few bricks and bottles later, and a full-blown riot erupted. The police, their prisoners, and a village voice reporter barricaded themselves in the bar, which the crowd attempted to burn down. The riot squad was able to get those people out of the building, and the fire department doused the flames, but they couldn't squelch the heat. Protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, continued for five more days. Popular history tells that Marsha P. Johnson was one of the first, if not the first person to throw something. But Johnson herself later said that the riot was already in full swing when she arrived. Similarly, Sylvia Rivera delivered a speech in 2001, clarifying, I have been given the credit of throwing the first Molotov cocktail by many historians, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. Detailed research after the riots found that Stormy Delavire not only shouted to the crowd, but punched the cop who was roughing her up. This first punch is considered to be the inciting moment that motivated others to fight back against the police. In 2008, when Delavire was asked why she hadn't come forward and taken credit for her actions, she answered, Because it was never anybody's business. Contrary to another reductive misbelief, the Stonewall Uprising didn't start the gay rights movement, but it was a galvanizing force for LGBTQ political activism, leading to numerous gay rights organizations, including the Gay Liberation Front, Human Rights Campaign, GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and PFLAG, Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. In 2016, President Barack Obama designated the site of the riots a national monument in recognition of the area's contribution to gay and human rights.
There's even a monument to the Stonewall Uprising in a park across the street from the bar. But the four figures, two male and two female, are all painted white, obfuscating the enormous contribution of trans women or people of color, like Johnson and Rivera, who were in the vanguard of the gay rights movement. Marsha P. Johnson was recognized for being herself and fearing no judgment for dressing and living as a woman, even as she struggled to survive living on the streets of New York. Born in New Jersey in 1945 as Malcolm Michaels, Marsha began dressing in girls' clothes as a child, which didn't go over at all well with her conservative Christian family. After high school, Marsha moved to Greenwich Village and legally changed her name. If you asked what the P stood for, she would say, pay it no mind. That's also what she would say when people began to pry into her personal business. And a brief aside for a modern Miss Manners moment, under no circumstances is it okay to ask someone you've just met about their genitals, what they were born with, what surgeries they've had. It's simply not your business. In New York, Marcia struggled to make ends meet, often ending up homeless and supporting herself as a sex worker. She also had to contend with mental health issues and constant police harassment. Still, she found joy as a drag queen amidst the nightlife of Christopher Street. Marcia scoured thrift shops to make her own costumes and quickly became a prominent fixture in the LGBTQ community as a drag mother, helping homeless and struggling youth. She even toured internationally with the Hot Peaches Drag Theater Company. But she always came back to Greenwich Village. Marcia was an eccentric woman, known for her flamboyant hats and jewelry that ensured she stood out in public. Her sense of style and pronounced self-assuredness even caught the eye of Andy Warhol, who included her in his Ladies and Gentlemen photo series. It was through the drag community that Marcia met Sylvia Rivera, Born Ray Rivera in 1951, Sylvia lived most of her life in or near New York City. She was abandoned by her father early in life and became an orphan at three years old when her mother committed suicide. Sylvia was then raised by her grandmother, who disapproved of her effeminate behavior. After the grandmother caught Sylvia wearing makeup in fourth grade, she kicked Sylvia out of her house. Fourth grade. Sylvia was 11 years old and homeless. Almost inevitably, she became a sex worker. Things began to look up for her, though, when she was taken in by the local community of drag queens who gave her the name Sylvia. Despite all of her hardships, Sylvia was always concerned for the welfare of others. Her activism began during the civil rights movement and continued through Vietnam War protests and second-wave feminism. As someone who suffered from systemic poverty, drug addiction, and racism, Sylvia used her voice for unity, sharing her stories, pain, and struggle to show her community that they were not alone. She amplified the voices of the most vulnerable members of the gay community, homeless youth, gay inmates in prison, and transgender people. Marcia and Sylvia founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. STAR was a radical political collective that also provided housing and support to homeless queer youth and sex workers. STAR is considered by many to be a groundbreaking organization in the LGBTQ liberation movement and a model for other organizations. 
Sylvia got the idea for Star during a near-week-long sit-in to protest the cancellation of dances that had been planned by the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee, who were the organizers of the first gay pride parade. These dances were meant to be fundraisers for the legal, medical, and housing needs of the gay community. Star was for the street gay people, the street homeless people, and anybody that needed help at that time, Sylvia said in an interview. Marcia and I always sneaked people into our hotel rooms. Marcia and I decided to get a building. We were trying to get away from the Mafia's control at the bars. Together with the Gay Liberation Front, Star hosted a fundraising dance to raise enough money for the purchase of Star House, a four-bedroom apartment in a run-down building in the East Village without electricity or heat. Marcia and Sylvia worked hard to get Star House into shape and to keep their kids fed and sheltered. They kept Star House alive the same way they kept themselves alive, through sex work. Sex work was a dangerous profession in 1970s New York, not that it's particularly safe today. During one encounter, Marcia was shot. The bullet was so close to her spine, she would have been paralyzed if doctors tried to remove it. She spent the rest of her life suffering from intense back pain, thanks to the bullet. Star House was only open for about a year. Star itself would only officially continue for two more years, but Marcia and Sylvia never gave up their fight. They fought for the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act to stop discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, credit, and the exercise of civil rights on the basis of sexual orientation. It was defeated in 1971, 83, and 93, but finally passed in 2002, 31 years after it was first introduced. Their next big action was to join other activists in the campaign for Intro 475, a municipal bill which Gay Activists Alliance helped introduce and which sought protections against sexual orientation discrimination. Many queer and trans people criticized GAA for ignoring protections for trans individuals, which they believe was an intentional move to make the bill more palatable to WASPy lawmakers. Trans exclusion within the queer community became a major issue when the gender non-conforming people and drag queens were relegated to the back of the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, as well as being excluded from the stage. Sylvia and fellow drag queen Lee Brewster stormed the stage during a feminist activist speech. Sylvia shouted, You go to bars because of what drag queens did for you, and these tell us to quit being ourselves. She criticized other gay liberation activists for their assimilationist agenda and led a chant of gay power. The feminist speaker took the mic again, decrying drag as misogynistic and demeaning. After the rally, Sylvia chose to leave the movement for years, going to upstate New York. We died in 1973, the fourth anniversary of Stonewall, she wrote in Queens in Exile, The Forgotten Ones. That's when we were told we were a threat and an embarrassment because lesbians felt offended by our attire, us wearing makeup. It came down to a brutal battle on the stage that year at Washington Square Park between me and people I considered my comrades and friends. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. 
Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. The war doesn't end just because you leave, and Star was resurrected in 2001 under the new name Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. After the June 2000 murder of Amanda Milan, a trans woman who, by all accounts, was minding her own business, waiting for a cab. Sylvia continued to work to advance the fight for transgender civil rights bill in New York City and New York State, and to fight for self-determination for all gender non-conforming people until her death from liver cancer in 2002. Marcia had died 10 years earlier in 1992. Her body was found in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. She was 46 years old. How she got there, though, is a mystery that may never be answered to the satisfaction of those who cared for her. She cared about the community and making a change, former Village Voice columnist Michael Mustow said. She wasn't a party girl. She was in bars a lot, but that was part of being part of the community. Friends say Johnson was acting normally when they last saw her the day she disappeared. Two days later, when her body was found, police quickly ruled her death a suicide, something that outraged many of those who knew her and believed she would never have taken her own life. Many point to the fact that Johnson was found with a bruise on the back of her head as evidence that she had been attacked. But a former medical examiner not affiliated with Johnson's case concluded that the discoloration could have come from the body decomposing in water. As the AIDS epidemic had picked up steam, Johnson, who was herself HIV positive, had become a prominent activist with the AIDS Coalition, protesting the high cost of drugs to help treat the disease, known on the street then as gay cancer. Those who claim Marcia took her own life use her medical history as a basis for their argument that the pain from the bullet in her back had become unbearable and her HIV diagnosis depressing. Randy Wicker, Johnson's roommate at the time and a fellow activist, recalled seeing where her body had been placed after it was pulled from the river. As she laid there, her blood soaked into the pavement, 
There was Marcia's blood and everything, where her body had lain on the asphalt. It was there a makeshift memorial sprung up, flowers dotting the ground. Her body was cremated, and the ashes spread off the Christopher Street Pier. For months afterward, people pushed for a more thorough investigation. Five months after Marcia's body was found, the outpouring reached a fever pitch. Among the voices was Tom Duane, then a city council member, and later the first openly gay New York State Senator with HIV, who demanded justice for Marcia, meeting with investigators in an effort to convince them to reopen the case. Her death deserves the most exhaustive investigation, Duane said in an interview, adding that the case was also unusual because of its very rapid determination. We were strong in our position that there needed to be more investigative work because even if Marcia was not world famous, she was important to the LGBTQ community and the downtown community. It was 20 years before police reopened Marcia's death for a second look in 2012. In the intervening years, speculation had run rampant. Maybe she had been killed in a mafia hit, some said. Maybe she tripped and fell in the river. She could even have slipped between the boards of the then dilapidated pier, possibly while fleeing from an assault. Witnesses claim she was being harassed the night she disappeared. Her death was changed from suicide to undetermined after enough public pressure had mounted. But the New York City Police Department maintains there is not enough evidence to indicate foul play. NYPD detectives conducted a thorough and exhaustive investigation into this cold case, a spokesman said in a statement. The NYPD cold case squad looked into the case in 2012. The cause of death was changed from cause of death drowning, manner of death suicide, to cause of death drowning, manner of death undetermined. The case is now closed. But for Marcia's friends, that's not enough. They continue to press for more to be done. Those who knew Marcia P. Johnson remember her determination. She was the Rosa Parks of the LGBTQ movement, transgender activist Mariah Lopez said. I am carrying on the legacy started by two homeless trans people. It is a group of trans activists who do the work and answer the phones in a grassroots way. We help those in hospitals and in prison, Lopez said of Star Today. Sylvia and Marcia couldn't envision the world we live in today, and Star cannot die. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In the years since Marcia's death, New York City has undergone drastic changes. The grittiness of Greenwich Village is gone, replaced by posh restaurants and expensive high-rise apartments. The pier where her body was found has long since been repaired. Gay bars are now open to all who want to come. Marcia left behind a legacy for people to be themselves, said the bartender at the Stonewall Inn during the riots. You see it now. Drag queens that are performing in clubs, just jumping cabs, take trains. But she was the beginning. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. And to all of my trans, non-binary, and non-conforming friends out there, who I wanted to rattle off by name, but there are just so many of you. I see you, and I love you. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. 
you'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.